we considered last week the first part of Psalm 101, uh, but I wanted to complete it tonight, if that's okay with you. Um, it's a very special, I think a very practical psalm, as we already saw, that we, that we need to learn, that we need to live by for our sake, and I believe for the sake of uh, the whole church. And so, um, if you would join me just reading this psalm together again, Psalm 101, uh, and then we'll pray, and then we'll dive right into God's Word uh, this evening. Psalm 101, a psalm of David. It says this, I will sing of loving kindness and justice. To you, O Lord, I will sing praises. I will give heed to the blameless way. When will you come to me? I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will know no evil. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. No one who has a haughty look and an arrogant heart will I endure. My eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a blameless way is the one who will minister to me. He who practices deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who speaks falsehood shall not maintain his position before me. Every morning I will destroy all the wicked of the land so as to cut off from the city of the Lord all those who do iniquity. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, as always, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Father in heaven, we, we cry out to you now again through prayer in Christ and ask that you would come to us and teach us. We know that this is not merely the word of men, but it is ultimately the word of God. You inspired it. You have kept and preserved it for your church, your people. I pray, therefore, Lord, that you would give us ears uh, to hear what the Spirit has to say to your bride, the church. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. I mean, why? Well, as I began to explain last week, this is a psalm that's co uh, comprised of nothing but holy resolutions. Uh, the entire psalm is David, the king, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, saying, I will, I will, I shall, I shall. Uh, there are 15 resolutions here, two in each of the first seven verses, and then one in verse 8. Uh, scholars say that uh, David wrote this psalm either right before or right after he became king. And the reason why David wrote it is because as one who had been born again by the Spirit of God, as one who had been given saving faith in the coming Redeemer and the Lord Jesus Christ, David wanted to live for the glory of God with every fiber of his being. And that is what true believers want to do. Uh, unbelievers want to live for the brief uh, pleasures of sin in this brief life. That's all they have. Uh, but to those to whom God has graciously granted life in Christ, they have different desires. They have a new heart that wants good, right, and godly things. And above all of that, they ultimately want God. 
So they don't seek to live for the pleasures of sin in this world. They seek to live for the uh, unsurpassable pleasures of knowing and walking faithfully with God. Well, David was one who, by God's grace, had come to taste and to see that the Lord is good. That at the right hand of God are pleasures forevermore. So he made it his chief aim in life to walk faithfully and serve the Lord. Yet, as all of us who are believers in Christ know, walking faithfully with the Lord is hard. It is hard work. It's hard for many reasons. It's hard because there's this world with its temptation. There's uh, the devil with his onslaught and the the flesh, the, the remnant of which still resides in the heart of a true believer in Christ. That's why it's hard. So, so one of the things that David did in his life was to hold his feet to the fire by composing these 15 resolutions. Uh, resolutions hold people accountable, right? If you put your New Year's resolution on your Facebook page, guess what's going to happen next year when it comes that time? It's going to pop up again. And you're going to look at that and say, oh, I hope people don't remember I posted that, right? So resolutions hold people accountable. They provide guidance. And I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. I'm going to be determined or committed by the grace of God to walk this way. Well, we as believers need to do the same thing. This is not just David's psalm to follow. This is your psalm to follow. This is our psalm to follow. But before we get into what these resolutions are, I want you to remind something. I want to remind you of something that's that's very important. It's of the utmost importance. And I mentioned this last week. David did not compose these resolutions as part of some attempt to earn acceptance with God. Do we get that? We have to get that. Uh, David wrote these resolutions as one who had already found acceptance in God. David wrote these resolutions as not one who was trying to get to heaven, but as one who was already, by the grace of God, bound for heaven. Uh, David understood, just as every true believer understands, that there is only one way to be accepted by God. And that is through faith in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Every saint in the Old Testament placed faith in the coming Christ. The Lord promised Christ all the way back in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3. The seed of the woman, he will come into the world and though he will have his heel struck through him, having his heel struck, he will crush the serpent's head. He's the offspring of Abraham who would bring blessing to all the nations. He's the greater son of David, as God said, whose kingdom would be established forever. He's the servant of the Lord that Isaiah spoke about, who would be wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. David and every other, by the way, Old Testament person of God placed their faith not in themselves or their own works or ability, but in the person and works of the coming Jesus Christ. Uh, Just as every New Testament person of God places his or her faith not in themselves or their works, but in the person and works in the Christ who has already come. Uh, David wrote this psalm, therefore, not to try and earn anything from God, but because Christ had already earned it all on his behalf. Uh, Now here, by the grace of God, is what I'm going to try and live my life according to you. David, as a spirit-born child of God, believe me, he did not keep any of these resolutions perfectly. But David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, did. He's the only one 
the sinless God-man who kept every one of these resolutions perfectly and sinlessly. And by placing your faith in Christ, friends, you get that record. As if you yourself did it. So there's the acceptance of God. Now, as those who have been accepted by God, we will, by the grace of God, out of love and thanksgiving for God, seek to live this way. So let's get on with these resolutions. We looked at the first eight last week, beginning in verses one through four. If I can, let me remind you quickly of them. We broke them down into two categories. We saw David's worship and David's walk. David, remember, begins exactly where he needs to begin with the worship of God. That's what he says in verse one. Look at what he says. I will sing of loving kindness and justice. To you, O Lord, I will sing praises. All of life is about God. So it only makes sense for him to begin his commitment right here. To be a person who gives God all the honor, all the praise, and all the glory that he alone deserves. David is resolving to be a worshiper. And for those who resolve to be worshipers of the Lord and are Christ worshipers of the Lord, they will be all the more resolved to walk in faithfulness to the Lord in every area of their lives. So you begin with worship. Then you go on to his walk in verses 2 through 4. Notice what he says here. I will give heed to the blameless way. In other words, I will be very careful to live a life of holiness, to live according to the blameless way. True holiness proceeds from the heart, and it is seen first and foremost in your house. That's why David goes on to say, I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. As Charles Spurgeon says, you are what you are in your home. When nobody else here sees you except your spouse and your kids, sometimes only God in the privacy of your own heart, you are what you are in your house. And David says, I'm going to walk with integrity and I want it to start within my home. And then he goes on, notice the practicality of this. He says in verse 3, I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I'm going to guard my eyes. If it, if it doesn't benefit my soul, it's not coming into my eyes because what you look at affects the entirety of your life. David goes on to say in verse 3, I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. He's referring there to apostates, those who talk the talk but don't walk the walk and prove themselves to be fake believers. He says, those people are not going to take me down with them. I hate their work. Their hypocritical, hypocritical work of saying one thing and living another, it shall not fasten its grip on me. And then lastly, he says in verse 4, a perverse heart shall depart from me, I will know no evil. That, that statement just pops out, doesn't it? I will know no evil. David's resolving to avoid evil in any and every form. If and when I find perversity in my own heart, I am going to confess it to God and repent. Whenever I see it in the life of somebody else, I am not going to let that person into the inner circle of my life. Did you hear that? I'm not going to let that individual, we're talking here about unbelievers now, I'm not going to let that individual into the inner circle of my life. Now, 
We're going to talk about that for the next couple of minutes here because that's exactly where David proceeds to go in verses 5 through 7. We haven't talked about these verses yet, but I want you to see not only David's worship, not only David's walk, but I want you to examine thirdly David's workers. This is what we get to see in verses 5 through 7. David's workers. Well, what do you mean workers? Well, let's consider who David is. I realize uh, that nobody here is king, but stay with me. In verses 5 through 7, there's a shift from where David goes from focusing on the kind of man he wants to be to the kind of king he needs to be. He goes from focusing on his personal life to his royal life as the king of Israel. Specifically, get this, he tells us about the kind of people with whom he is going to surround himself. Those to whom he is going to look for counsel. Those who are going to be his closest friends. And then actually in verse 8, he's going to talk to us about the kind of actions that he, as the representative of God, has to carry out as the king of God's people. So verses 5 through 7, David's workers. Once again, I know that Nobody here is a king. Maybe you view yourself as a king of your own home or whatever, but stop. That's weird. You're not, okay? You are not a king. Uh, I get that. We're in a different position than David. However, I don't want you to begin thinking that verses 5 through 7 have no practical wisdom for you because they do. Everybody here who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ needs counselors, Everybody here needs close friends that you can depend on. Friends that will influence you in godly ways rather than ungodly ways. Church family, this passage is dripping with wisdom. So so who were these people with whom David sought to surround himself? Who were these individuals to whom David gave a seat at his table? That David was going to let uh, let give him counsel. That David was going to let speak into his ear and tell him how he ought to live his life. Well, he begins by not telling us who these people are, but who they're not going to be. David's picky. In fact, he's real picky. And church family, if if you're wise, you'll be just as picky. Uh, Verse 5, here is who they won't be. He starts by saying, Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. Slanders are off the list. If a slanderer brings his resume to David, it goes right into the trash can. He does not consider them to be his counselors. He does not consider people who go behind people's backs with their words and and damage their reputation. That's what a slanderer is, right? A slander is is someone who secretly, verbally damages a person's precious name. People are made in the image of God and their names must be protected. Nothing so dishonors and damages a person's name like slander. And we know this to be true, don't we? Once a slanderous piece of information is spread around, even if it's spread to just one person, even if it's proven patently false, it has the potential of ruining that person's reputation for the rest of his or her life. Wherever that person goes, the slanderous information goes with them. 
So no matter what that person says or does or what that person proves with respect to his innocence in a court of law, many people will at least be tempted to doubt his innocence, to look down upon them right from the get-go. Once you've been slandered, it is hard to restore your reputation, even if you're totally innocent, because people are prone to always believe the worst. Which is why, by the way, the Bible forbids prejudging or showing partiality. Did you know that? Uh, let me read you just one passage out of 1 Timothy chapter 5. The Apostle Paul is speaking to the, the pastor, Timothy, who is the pastor of the church of Ephesus. And look at what he says. He says, Those who continue in sin, rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. So, we're going to get to this later. He says, rebuke them in front of the church. And then he gives them this warning. Look what he says in verse 21. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ and of his chosen angels. What's the charge? To maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. People's reputations are precious. You have the power to destroy those reputations with your word. So this would include things like gossip, spreading rumors, sharing secrets that are not meant to be shared, true secrets even. All of it is classified as slander. It's not only sin against the individual, friends, it's sin against God because that person was made in God's image. David says, I ain't gonna have any slanders working for me. I care too much about my name and about the names of the innocent, so I'm not going to allow anybody a seat at my table who is marked by gossip, rumor-mongering, or sharing secrets. I'm not going to let my eyes see anything worthless, and I'm not going to let my ears be in the presence of slanderers. I'm not going to let you use the ears that God has given me for your trash can. David says, I'm resolved to do this, but notice what he, he's resolved to do in the midst of this. He says he's going to destroy them. At the very least, what this means is as the king, I'm going to deal with these very severely. They are going to be punished by me for their slander. Not only will I exclude them from my table, but I will punish them as king. Then notice what he goes on to say the next kind of person he's not going to have as his counselors. The haughty. He says, no one who has a haughty look and an arrogant heart will I endure. This is the proud. Uh, this is, by the way, every unbelieving man and woman. They're all proud. They're filled with pride. How can I say such a, uh, a sweeping statement like that? How? Well, because they've refused to acknowledge the truth that is made plain to them that all honor and glory and power belongs to God. They've refused to humble themselves before the Lord, repent of their sins, and place their faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. They are filled with pride, and David would not have the proud at his table. He understands that God makes men what they are, not men themselves. Now think about David. Before he was this rich and powerful king, he was who? This poor and lowly shepherd boy. You ever sat back and thought of the transformation of David? He was a nobody, a run-of-the-mill kid. 
No, no royal blood even flowing through his veins. In fact, the blood he had flowing through his veins was not even of a noble. Do you remember who David's great-grandmother was? A Gentile Moabite named Ruth. Do you remember who David's great-great-grandmother was? A Gentile prostitute by the name of Rahab. He was not even purely Jewish. It's, it's not a stretch to say that many people in David's day probably thought of him and, and thought of his family as unclean, dirty compared to them that were purely Jewish. Yet here he is now, the, the king of the people of God. It is God who makes people who they are, not the people. And so David found it absolutely repugnant when anybody took credit for anything because all credit, all glory ultimately belongs to the Lord. He's not going to have any proud individual who has refused to acknowledge the truth that God is God and they are not God sitting at his table. Then drop down to verse 7. Here's another description of the kind of person who will not have a seat at David's table. Verse 7 says, He who practices deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who speaks falsehood shall not maintain his position before me. Consistent theme here. David wanted truth tellers, didn't he? Men of the book who, who knew the word of God and were unafraid to speak it. Even if it meant confronting David in his own sin. I want you to hear this. David didn't want yes men. He wanted honest men. Don't you want that? Don't you want somebody with the guts, uh, the fear of the Lord, to lovingly tell you that you're wrong when you are wrong? Uh, Don't you understand the words of Solomon when he writes in the book of Proverbs, chapter 27, verse 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend? They aid in your faithfulness to the Lord. Their wounds, yes, but they're faithful. Isn't there some sort of desire in your life for that? That's what David wants. That's what David is actually resolved to get. Well, David says that these people are the ones who are not going to have a seat. But what about those to whom he says, come, be my counselor, be Uh, My closest friend, come and dwell in my palace, dwell in my house, dwell in my inner circle. Who are those? Verse 6 tells us who they are. He says, my eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a blameless way is the one who will minister to me. Now, if you're, you're following the psalm, what David really is saying is, I'm, I'm looking for those who are committed just as I am to walk blamelessly. I'm looking for people who, by the grace of God, have come to faith in the coming Redeemer, who are thus committed to worshiping him and walking down the narrow road of godly living. That is who I'm looking for. David knew the truth of the Proverbs. Proverbs 13, 20, he who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Proverbs 11, verse 14, where there is no guidance, the people fall, but in abundance of counselors, there's victory. We're more popular one, Proverbs 27, 17, we know this one, iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. David understood the principle that his godliness, and really the godliness of all of Israel, depended in large part upon the godliness of those to whom he was most close. 
Who you hang with matters so much. I want you to notice that the emphasis here is placed on the person's walk and not on the person's talk. He says he who walks in the blameless way. He or she shall be the one who ministers to me, who serves me, counsels me, gives me advice, encourages me, comforts me. I will look to him or her. I will not look to the one who merely talks. I will look to the one who proves the talk by the walk. You realize how many people talk a good talk, right? I mean, you know that 95% of Americans are Christians because they say that they're Christians, They say, I'm a child of God, I I believe the Bible, I go to church, but their walk proves that their talk is a lie. You don't look, ultimately, at talk. You look at walk. By their fruits you shall recognize them, Jesus said. Faith is dead apart from works. David's looking for for works, for fruit. Yes, part of that fruit is is a solid confession, But where that solid confession really shows itself will be in godly conduct. So let me just ask you a question here. Who are the closest friends you have? That's what verses 5 through 7 are asking you. Are your closest friends believers? Do they know, love, and serve the Lord Jesus Christ? Are they worshipers of the Lord? Are they resolved to be worshipers of the Lord? Are they those who walk faithfully with God? Are these the people in your inner circle? Are these your counselors, your advisors, the people you go to with your doubts, your struggles, your fears, your deepest questions, and your worst griefs? I'm not saying here that unbelievers cannot be your friends. That's that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that at all. Of course not. We, We associate with them. We befriend them. We show them hospitality. But they are not to be your best friends. How can they be? Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, what, what does light have in common with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial, the devil? How can it be? If your closest friends are unbelievers, friends, that's actually an indication that you need to do a heart check to see if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Young people, Youth, who are your closest friends? Don't tell me, by the way, I don't know any Christians. Remember, I used to be a youth pastor. I won't fall for that one. Listen, you aren't Noah, (laughs) where everybody on the earth but him was unrighteous. We live in a country that does have many believers. Your school has believers. Your church has believers. There is no excuse for not having close Christian friends. Young ladies, what what kind of man do you want to date? Young men, what kind of girls do you want to date? The marriage relationship is the closest human relationship. The Bible is clear. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And parents, you you realize that uh, that much of this with respect to your children falls squarely at your feet. Do you have a good pulse on the group uh, your children are hanging out with? What we see with our eyes, what we hear with our ears, and the people with whom we are close necessarily influences us. We see this all the time, don't we? There's an epidemic going on. Many Christians go off to college. They flounder and they fall away to a degree from the Lord Jesus. There are many reasons for this. But I believe one of the reasons is their friends. 
And I just, I just started reminiscing and thinking about uh, this week, the, the praise I had to God for the, the close group of friends I had in those college years. I'm so thankful for, for Kyle and Frank and Drew and Mark and Daniel and Aaron and, and Shanna and Ben. These, these people who were my inner circle for four to six years because, yes, even though I'm not a doctor, I went to college for four to six years, which probably doesn't surprise many of you, okay? Fun-loving people, but Christ-pursuing people. And I look back at those college years as some of the, the best years of my life. Those were some of the best times. But a little leaven... Leaven's the whole lump. It really is true. A rotten apple can, can spoil the whole bunch. Youth especially. Be, be careful who you choose as your closest friends. I want, I want to close really quickly by just looking at this last verse. I think we can refer to this verse as David's warning. And even that's kind of putting it lightly, to be honest. David's warning we find in verse 8. As you read verse 8, it should shock you a little bit. We've got David's worship, walk, workers, and warning. And he ain't playing around. This is what he says. Every morning, I will destroy all the wicked of the land. So as to cut off from the city of the Lord all those who do iniquity. Now again, we need to remember the context. David is speaking here as the Old Testament king of Israel. Israel in the Old Testament was a theocracy where, where the civil government and the truth of God were one and the same. We, there is no theocracy anymore, right? Because the church is the, the people of God. The church is the Israel of God. But what David is saying here as the chief executive officer of the people of God in the Old Testament, uh, there's debate here, but, but what, he's saying when, what is he saying when he says, I will destroy them and cut them off? Is he saying, I will simply remove them physically from the borders of Israel? Or is he saying, I'm going to kill them? Well, there are about 20 sins in the Old Testament for which God required the death penalty. Only one of them was murder, by the way. There, there were 16 to 19 more that involved all kinds of things. Uh, false worship, dishonoring of parents, various kinds of sexual immorality. Uh, John Calvin says that David's saying that they will be put to death. He takes this in the strictest of senses, and I honestly tend to agree. But if that's true, what is the application for the church today? No theocracy. There is a civil government that God has arranged whereby the way he still does require the death penalty for those who commit murder. It's funny to me, people sometimes say that the death penalty won't take away murder. It won't help, but of course it does. You take out the murderer, and then... Secondly, the death penalty isn't to be merely carried out as a preventative measure, but as a retribution for a punishment for murder. It's what, it's what they deserve. The civil government has the prescription, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now listen, personally, we don't. This isn't vigilantism we're talking about here. We, individually, we don't have that right. Jesus makes that clear on the Sermon on the Mount. But civilly, the government has the requirement to bear the sword. Romans 13, 1 through 4. Listen, swords aren't for spanking. They're for decapitating. But, but what, what's the application for us, the church? It's simple, friends. It's, it's church discipline. But what he's saying to us is that we have the obligation as a church to cut off from our body those who live in continual, ongoing, 
unrepentant sin. A slanderers, liars, arrogance without repentance, God says they must be removed from the body. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it says this, remove the wicked man from among yourself. That, that word remove is the word that's used in the Hebrew for, for cut off. Cut them off. And church, the elders of this church will be committed to gently, lovingly, patiently practice this particular matter. For your sakes, knowing that a little leaven lessens the entire lump and for ultimately because the glory of God is at stake. The desire for church discipline, by the way, it's always to retrieve the wandering, professing Christian. It's, it's reconciliation. That's the goal of church discipline. It's to, to get them back. And yet we must be faithful to practice it. And when's the last time you even thought about this practiced in the church today? It's something we just entirely gloss over because we don't feel like it's culturally acceptable. But it's mandated by the word of God that we practice church discipline. The name of God is at stake. Uh, just, just as slandering puts your name and your reputation at stake, if a Christian, someone who says, I'm a follower of Christ, I'm a Christ follower, goes on and lives in continual, unrepentant, unconfessed sin, what does that say about Jesus? What does it say about his glory? What does it say about what it means to be a Christian? What it means to strive for holiness? What it means to be washed clean? His name is at stake, and therefore we practice church discipline so they would see what it really means to be a follower of Christ. That it's, it's not just talk, but it's walk. God's glory is at stake, therefore we ought to practice discipline. Well, these are very practical, and yet let's be honest, very challenging commands. Uh, to worship the Lord, to walk with the Lord, to select the right people to follow the Lord with, and to carry out church discipline, to heed that warning. So, so I want to point you once again, the same way we ended last week, to the means we get, the strength we get. It comes in the second line of verse 2. David prays again, oh, when will you come to me? See, he's, he's writing these resolutions and he's saying, oh my. I imagine even as the Spirit of God is inspiring him and moving him to, to write such things, I imagine him saying, I'm going to fall flat on my face if, God, you don't come and help me. We need to be praying this prayer. Yes, God, I want to live a, a holy life for you. I want to walk in a blameless way, but when will you come to me to help me? When will you enable, compel, and motivate me to make progress in these holy resolutions? And for those who are in Christ, the good news of all of this is that he alone provides all the strength you need to make progress. He is that source of strength and he has come to you. He has sent his helper, the Holy Spirit, to dwell in the lives of believer to guide you and to help you live for him. So be encouraged, church family. You have all the strength you need to progress in your Christian walk because God's faithful to provide it. Praise God for his wonderful, marvelous grace. Let's pray together.